section 21 of Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Businessmen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michelle Eaton. Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Businessmen by Albert Hubbard. Chapter 11 H. H. Rogers, Part 2. In 1872, there were 26 separate oil refineries in Cleveland. Refined oil sold to the consumer for 20 cents a gallon, and much of it was of an unsafe and uncertain quality. It was what you might call erratic. Some of the refineries were poorly equipped, and fire was a factor that made the owners sit up nights when they should have been asleep. Insurance was out of the question. One of these concerns was the Acme Oil Company, of which John D. Archbold was president. Its capital was $40,000, some of which had been paid in, in cash. William Rockefeller was at the head of still another company, and John D. Rockefeller, brother of William and two years older, had an interest in three more concerns. Outbidding each other for supplies, hiring each other's men, with a production made up of a multiplicity of grades, made the business one of chaotic uncertainty. The rule was, dog eat dog. Then it was that John D. Rockefeller conceived the idea of combining all the companies in Cleveland, and as many elsewhere as possible, under the name of the Standard Oil Company. The corporation was duly formed, with a capital of $1 million. The Pratt Oil Company with principal works in Brooklyn, but a branch in Cleveland was one of the 20 concerns that were absorbed. The stocks of the various concerns were taken up and paid for in standard oil certificates. And so it happened that Henry H. Rogers, aged 32, found himself worth $100,000, not in cash, but in shares that were supposed to be worth par, and should pay, if rightly managed, seven or eight per cent. He was one of the directors in the new company. It was an enviable position for any young man. Of course, there were the Weisheimers, then as now, and statements were made that the Pratt Oil Company had been pushed to the wall and would shortly have its net wrung by John D. Rockefeller and have to start all over. But these prophets knew neither Rockefeller nor Rogers, and much less the resources and wants of the world. In very truth, neither the brothers, Rockefeller, Rogers, nor Archbold, nor any one of that score of men who formed the Standard Oil Company, ever anticipated, even in their wildest dreams, the possibilities in the business. The growth of America in men and money has been a thing unguessed and unprophesied. Thomas Jefferson seemed to have had a more prophetic eye than anyone else, but he never imagined the railroads, pipelines, skyscrapers, iron steamships, telegraphs, telephones, nor the use of electricity and concrete. He did, however, see our public school system, and he said that by the year 1900, the United States will have a population of 50 million people. This is why he made that real estate deal with Napoleon, which most Americans of the time thought a bad bargain. 
Rogers had great hope and an exuberant imagination, but the most he saw for himself was an income of $5,000 a year and a good house unencumbered with a library and a guest room. In addition, he expected to own a horse and buggy. He would take care of the horse himself and wash the buggy, also grease the axles. In fact, his thoughts were on flowers, books, education and on cultivating his mental acreage. John D. Rockefeller was sorely beset by business burdens. The Standard Oil Company had moved its headquarters to New York City, where its business was largely exporting. The brothers Rockefeller found themselves swamped under a mass of detail. Power flows to the men who can shoulder it, and burdens go to those who can carry them. Here was a business without precedent, and all growing beyond human thought. To meet the issues as they arise, the men at the head must grow with the business. Rogers could make decisions, and he had strength like silk and fibre. He could bend but never break. His health was perfect, his mind was fluid. He was alive and alert to all new methods and plans. He had great good cheer, and was of a kind to meet men and mould them. He set a pace which only the very young could follow, but which inspired all. John D. Rockefeller worked himself to a physical finish twenty years ago, and his mantle fell by divine right on H.H. with John D. Archbold as understudy. Since John D. Rockefeller slipped out from under the burden of active management of the Standard Oil Company about the year 1888, the business has more than quadrupled. John D. Rockefeller never got mad, and Rogers and Archbold made it a rule never to get mad at the same time. When the stress and strife began to cause Rockefeller to lose his hair and his appetite, he once pulled down his long upper lip and placidly bewailed his inability to take a vacation. Like many another good man, he thought his presence was a necessity to the business. Go on with you, said H.H. Am I not here? Then there is Archbold. He is always Johnny on the spot. Rockefeller smiled a sphinx-like smile, as near as he ever came to indulging in a laugh, and moseyed out of the room. That night, he went up to the Catskills. The next day, a telegram came from Rockefeller, addressed to Johnny on the spot, 26 Broadway. The message was carried directly to John D. Archbold without question and duly receipted for. Since then, the phrase has become almost a classic, but few people there be who know that it was Rogers who launched it or who generally are aware that the original charter member of the On The Spot Club was Johnny Archbold. H. H. Rogers was a trailmaker and as a matter of course was not understanded of the people who hug close to the friendly backlog and talk of other days and the times that were. Rogers was an economist, perhaps the greatest economist of his time, and an economist deals with conditions, not theories, facts, not fancies. A few years ago, all retail grocers sold kerosene. The kerosene can with its spud on the spout was a household sign. Moreover, we not only had kerosene in the can, but we had it on the loaf of bread and on almost everything that came from the grocers. For, if the can did not leak, it swept, 
and the oil of gladness was on the hands and clothes of the clerk. The grocers lifted no howl when the handling of kerosene was taken out of their hands. In truth, they were never so happy as kerosene was hazardous to handle and entailed little profit. The stuff was that cheap. Besides that, a barrel of 42 gallons measured out to the user about 38 gallons. Loaded into cars, bumped out, lying in the sun on station platforms, it always and forever hunted the crevices. Schemes were devised to line the inside of barrels with rosin. But always the stuff stole forth to freedom. Freight, cartage, leakage, cooperage and return of barrels meant loss of temper, trade and dolodoche. Realising all these things, H.H. H. Rogers, aided by his able Major General, John D. Archbold, revolutionised the trade. The man who now handles your kerosene does not handle your sugar. He is a specialist. In every town in America, of more than 1,000 people, is a standard oil agency. The oil is delivered from tank cars into iron tanks. From there it is piped into tank wagons. This wagon comes to your door and the gentlemanly agent sees that your little household tank is kept filled. All you have to do is to turn a faucet. Aye, in this pleasant village of East Aurora is a standard oil agent who will fill your lamp and trim the wick, provided you buy your lamps, chimneys and wicks off him. And this service is standard oil service. It extends from Halifax to San Diego, from New Orleans to Hudson Bay. In very truth, it covers the world. This service, with prohibition in the South, has ruined the Cooper's trade, the trade that introduced H.M. Flagler into the Standard Oil Company. The investment in cooperage used in the oil business has shrunk from a hundred millions to less than five millions, while the traffic in oil has doubled. And the germ of this service to the consumer came from the time when Henry Rogers worked a grocery route for a cooperative concern that cut out the expensive middleman and instead focused on a faultless service to the consumer. The name petroleum is Latin. The word has been in use since the time of Pliny, who lived neighbour to Paul in Rome. When the apostle abided in his own hired house, awaiting trial under an indictment for saying things about the established religion, until within 60 years, the world thought that petroleum was one simple substance. Now we find it is a thousand, mixed and fused and blended in the crucible of time. Science sifts, separates, dissolves, analyses, classifies. The perfumes gathered by the tendrils of violet and rose in their divine desire for expression are found in petroleum. Aye. The colours and all the delicate tints of petal, of stamen and of pistol are in this substance stored in the dark recesses of the earth. Petroleum has yielded up over 2,000 distinct substances, wooed by the loving, eager caress of the chemist. All the elements that go to make up the earth are there. Hundreds of articles used in commerce and in our daily lives are gotten from petroleum. To secure these in a form fit for daily use, 
was the tireless task of Henry H. Rogers. Not by his own hands, of course, for life is too short for that, but the universities of the round world have been called upon for their men of brains. Rogers' business was to discover men. This is a phase of the history of the Standard Oil Company that has not yet been written, but which is of vastly greater importance than the motions of well-meaning but non-producing attorneys whose mental processes are dry holes. Science is classification, said Aristotle to his bad boy pupil, Alexander, 340 years before Christ. Science is common sense classified, said Herbert Spencer. Science eliminates the worthless and the useless and then makes use of it in something else, said Thomas A. Edison. H. H. Rogers utilised the worthless and the dividends of the Standard Oil Company are largely a result of cashing in by-products. Rogers not only rendered waste products valuable, but he utilised human energies often to the great surprise of the owner. That gentle tarbell slant to the effect that even the elevator boys in the standard oil offices are hired with an idea of their development is a great compliment to a man who was not only a great businessman, but a great teacher. And all influential men are teachers, whether they know it or not. Perhaps we are all teachers of good or ill. I really do not know. But the pedagogic instinct was strong in Rogers. He barely escaped a professorship. He built schoolhouses, and if he had had time, he would have taught in them. He looked at any boy, not for what he was, but for what he might become. He analysed every man, not for what he was, but for what he might have been, or what he would be. Humanity was Roger's raw stock, not petroleum, and his success hinged on bringing humanity to bear on petroleum or, if you please, by mixing brains with rock oil, somewhat as Horace Greeley advised the farmer to mix brains with his compost. In judging a man, we must in justice to ourselves ask, what effect has this man's life, taken as a whole, had on the world? To lift out samples here and there and hold them up does not give us the man, any more than a sample brick gives you a view of the house. And viewing the life of Rogers for years, from the time he saw the light of a whale oil lamp in Fairhaven, to the man as we behold him now, we must acknowledge his initiative and his power. He gave profitable work to millions. He directly made homes and comforts possible for thousands upon thousands. He helped the young, without number, to find themselves in their work and at their work. In a material way, he added vast millions to the wealth of the world by the utilisation of products which were considered worthless. He gloried in the fresh air, in the blasts of winter, or in the zephyrs of spring. The expanse of heaving, tossing ice was just as beautiful to him as the smooth flow of Hendricks Hudson's waters as they hastened to the sea. The storied 26 Broadway is no den of ogres, no gambling resort of dark and devious ways. It is simply an office building full of busy men and women, workers who waste neither time nor money. You will find there no figureheads, no gold lace, 
no pomps and ceremonies. If you have business there, you locate your man without challenge. All is free, open, simple and direct. On the top floor is a restaurant where all lunch in a common fraternal way, jolly and jocund, as becomes men who carry big burdens. The place is democratic to a fault, for the controlling spirits of 26 Broadway are men who have come by a rocky road, having conquered great difficulties, overcome great obstacles, and while often thirsting for human sympathy, have nevertheless been able to do without it. Success is apt to sour, for it begets an opposition that is often cruel and unjust. Reorganisation gives the demagogue his chance, and often his literary lydite strikes close. But Rogers was great enough to know that the penalty of success must be paid. He took his medicine and smiled. Time was when a millionaire was a man worth a million dollars, but that day is past. Next, a millionaire was a man who made a million dollars a year. That too is obsolete. The millionaire now is the man who spends a million dollars a year. In this new and select class, a class which does not exist outside of America, H.H. H. Rogers was a charter member. He was a royal gentleman, said Booker T. Washington to me, when I was in need I held H.H. H. Rogers in reserve until all others failed me. Then I went to him and frankly told my needs. He always heard me through and then told me to state the figure. He never failed me. Rogers gave with a lavish hand, but few of his benefactions comparatively were known. The newspapers have made much of his throwing a horser to Mark Twain and towing the humorist off a financial sandbar. Also, we have heard how he gave Helen Keller to the world, for without the help of H.H. H. Rogers, that wonderful woman would still be like unto the eyeless fish in the mammoth cave. As it is, her soul radiates an inward light and science stands uncovered. But there were very many other persons and institutions that received very tangible benefits from the hands of H.H. H. Rogers. One method he had of giving help to ambitious young men was to invest in stock in companies that were not quite strong enough financially to weather a gale. And very often these were very bad investments. Had Rogers stuck to Standard Oil, his fortune would have been double what it was. But for the money, he did not much care. He played the game. Mr Rogers was too wise to give to individuals. He knew that mortal tendency, referred to by St. André de Ligereau as Hubbard's Law or the Law of Altruistic Injury. This law provides that whenever you do for a person a service which he is able and should do for himself, you work him a wrong instead of a benefit. H. H. Rogers sought to give opportunity, not things. When he invested a million dollars in a tack factory in Fairhaven, it was with intent to supply employment to every man or woman or boy or girl in Fairhaven who desired work. He wanted to make poverty inexcusable. Yet he realised that there were cases where age and disease had sapped the person's powers and to such he gave by stealth or through friends whom he loved and trusted. Mrs W. P. Windsor of Fairhaven, for instance, 
worked days and months overtime on the bidding of Mr Rogers, caring for emergency cases where girls and boys were struggling to get an education and care for aged parents and invalid brothers and sisters, or where fate had been unkind and God seemingly had forgot. Houses were painted, mortgages were lifted, taxes paid, monuments erected, roadways laid out, books furnished, trees planted, ditches dug, bathrooms installed, swamps drained, bridges built in hundreds of instances. This is not philanthropy of a high order, perhaps, but Rogers hated both the words charitable and philanthropic as applied to himself. All he claimed to be was a businessman who paid his debts and who tried to make others pay theirs. The people he helped were the people he knew or had known and they were folks who had helped him. He never forgot a benefit nor a wrong. He was a very human individual. To give to a person where the account is not balanced by a mutual service is probably to add an enemy to your list. You have uncovered the weakness of your man. He is an incompetent and he will never forgive you for making the discovery. When H.H. H. Rogers paid off Mark Twain's indebtedness to the tune of $90,000, he did not scratch a poet and find an ingrate. What he actually discovered was a philosopher and a prophet without a grouch. Somewhere I have said that there were only two men in America who could be safely endowed. One is Luther Burbank and the other Booker T. Washington. These men have both made the world their debtors. They are impersonal men, sort of human media through which deity is creating. They ask for nothing, they give everything. Mark Twain belongs in the same select list. The difference between Mark Twain and Luther Burbank is this. Mark hoes his spiritual acreage in bed, while Luther Burbank works in the garden. Luther produces spineless cacti, while Mark gives spineless men a vertebra. Mark makes us laugh in order that he may make us think. The last time I saw H.H. H. Rogers was in his office at 26 Broadway, out through a half doorway leading into a private conference room. I saw a man stretched out on a sofa asleep, a great shock of white hair spread out over the pillow that held his head, and hook-thin snores of peace in rhythmic measures filled the room. Mr Rogers noticed my glance in the direction of the Morpheus music. He smiled and said, It's only Mark. He's taking a little well-earned rest. He was born tired, you know. If Mark Twain were not a rich man himself, rich in mines of truth, fields of uncut fun, and the Argoses sailing great spiritual seas, coming into port laden with common sense, he would long since have turned on his benefactor and nailed his hide on the barn door of obliquity. As it is, Mark takes his own, just as Socrates did from Mr and Mrs Pericles. Aye, or as did Bronson Alcott, who once ran his wheelbarrow into the well-kept garden of Ralph Waldo Emerson. The Orphic one was loading up with potatoes, peas, beans and one big yellow pumpkin when he glanced around 
and saw the man who wrote self-reliance gazing at him seriously and steadily over the garden wall the father of the author of little women winced but bracing up gave back stare for stare and in a voice flavoured with resentment and defiance said i need them and the owner of the garden grew abashed before that virtuous gaze murmured apologies and retreated in good order and mark twain used to explain it thus you see it is like this rogers furnishes the plans and i foot the bills and this was all there was about it only a big man can take his own without abasement mark twain has made two grins grow where there was only a growl before i don't care where he gets his vegetables nor where he takes a well-earned nap and neither does he the average millionaire believes in education because he has heard the commodity highly recommended in the newspapers usually he is a man who has not had college advantages and so he is filled with the fallacy that he has dropped something out of his life we idolize the things that are not ours h h rogers was an exception he was at home in any company he took little on faith he analyzed things for himself and his opinion was that the old line colleges tended to destroy individuality and smother initiative he believed that the high school was the key to the situation and to carry the youth beyond this was to run the risk of working his ruin the boy who leaves the high school at 17 and enters actual business stands a much better chance of success than does the youth who comes out of college at 21 with the world yet before him he said he himself was one of the first class that graduated from the old fairhaven grammar school he realized that his success in life came largely from the mental ammunition that he had gotten there and from the fact that he made a quick use of his knowledge yet he realized that the old fairhaven high or grammar school was not a model institution it has a maximum of discipline and a minimum of inspiration he used to say the changing order of education found a quick response in his heart he never brooded over his lack of advantages on the other hand he used often to refer to the fact that his childhood was ideal but all around he saw children whose surroundings were not ideal and these he longed to benefit and bless and so in 1880 when he was 40 years of age he built a grammar manual training school and presented it to the town it was called the rogers school such a gift to a town is enough to work the local immortality of the giver but the end was not yet in a few years rogers or mrs rogers to be exact presented to the village a town hall beautiful and complete at a cost of something over two hundred fifty thousand dollars next came the millicent public library in memory of a beloved daughter when his mother passed away as a memorial to her he built a church and presented it to the unitarian denomination it is probably the most complete and artistic church in america its cost was a million dollars the fairhaven waterworks system was a present from mr rogers and lastly was the fairhaven high school 
as fair and fine an edifice and as completely equipped as genius married to money could supply. The only rival this school has in America is the Stout High School in Menominee, Wisconsin, which is also the gift of an individual. No municipality in the world has ever erected and completed so good a school. The taxpayers would not allow it. Into our school teaching go the cheese-pairing policies of the average villager. In truth, George Bernard Shaw avers that we are a nation of villagers. The big deeds of the world are always done by individuals. One man power is the only thing that counts. The altruistic millionaire is a necessity of progress. He does magnificent things, which the many will not and cannot do. So we find the model town of Fairhaven moulded and fashioned by her first citizen. Everywhere are the marks of his personality and the tangible signs of his good taste. The only political office to which Henry H. Rogers ever aspired was that of Street Commissioner of Fairhaven. He filled the office to the satisfaction of his constituents and drew his stipend of $3 a day for several years. Good roads was his hobby. Next to this came tree planting and flowers. His dream was to have the earth transformed into a vast flower garden and park and given to the people. His last item of public work was an object lesson as to what the engineering skill of man can do. He took a great bog or swamp that lay to the north of the village and was used as a village dumping ground. He drained this tract, filled it with gravel and then earth and transformed it into a public park of marvellous beauty. The last great business effort of H. H. Rogers was the building of the Virginian Railroad. This road connects the great coal fields of West Virginia with tidewater. The route is 443 miles long. By this line, a thousand million dollars worth of coal is made available to the world, said a great engineer to me. And then he added, it will take 20 years, however, to prove fully the truth of H. H. Rogers' prophetic vision. This was the Herculean task of a man in his thirties, not for one approaching his 70th milestone. But Rogers built this road alone. He constructed and equipped it in a style so complete that it has set a pace in railroading. You who know the history of railroads realise that the first thing is to get the line through. Two streaks of rust, a tea kettle and a right of way make a railroad. This allows you to list your bonds. But H. H. Rogers had neither bonds nor stock for sale. What other man ever put 40 millions of money and his lifeblood into a railroad? Was the work worth the price? It were vain to ask. The work is done, the man is dead, and that his death was hastened by the work, no one can doubt. Rogers had the invincible heart of youth. He died as he had lived, always and forever in the thick of the fight. He had that American trinity of virtues, pluck, push and perseverance. Courage, endurance, energy, initiative, ambition, industry, good cheer, sympathy and wonderful executive ability were his attributes. 
End of section 21.